Akshay, did you always knew what you wanted to do when you passed out from MBA? I was all over the place. Uh, Saurabh, what about you? Yeah, I didn't have any idea. I didn't have any idea. Confused about your career choices? Wondering what steps to take next? In this podcast called Beyond Campus, Saurabh Garg, founder of C4E, and Akshadat, founder of Unnati, are on a mission to crack open the career success code for the youth. वो बचपन में कहते थे ना तुम जो चाहे बन सकते हो सो लेट्स टर्न द ड्रीम इनटू रियलिटी हाय आई एम डॉक्टर श्रीकांत सोला सीईओ ऑफ देविक अर्थ इट इज सेड दैट ब्रीदिंग द एयर ऑफ अ पोल्यूटेड सिटी इन इंडिया लाइक दिल्ली और मुंबई इज लाइक स्मोकिंग अ फुल पैक ऑफ सिगरेट्स आई एम श्योर वी ऑल हर्ड दीस टाइप्स ऑफ स्कैरी स्टैटिस्टिक्स अबाउट द हैजर्ड्स ऑफ एयर पोल्यूशन As a cardiac surgeon, Dr. Shrikant Sola actually experienced the hazards of air pollution firsthand when his patient, who was a young man with no risk factors, died due to a cardiac arrest that was the direct cause of sustained exposure to air pollution. This had such a deep and lasting impact on him that he spent the next decade moonlighting to find a solution to the chronic problem of air pollution. and boy did he find an innovative solution to this problem want to know what it was keep listening as dr sola talks to akshay tat about his journey to solve air pollution using an innovative low cost solution which could help save lakhs of lives each year so uh, dr shrikant uh, what do you call as home like you know where, where do you belong to like where did you grow up yeah i been all over the world i was born in vijayawada in andhra pradesh uh we moved to barbados uh, in the caribbean when i was around 3 or 4 and then from there moved to the united states this was way back in the 1970s uh, the first movie we saw in theaters was star wars and so that sort of gives you an idea of of uh, when we moved times in america were much different especially for indian immigrants in those days my father was a doctor and uh we moved around uh, to uh kentucky chicago uh a few other places and um my work and studies took me to california at stanford to uh, duke university in north carolina uh, atlanta to study at emory university and finally i worked at the cleveland clinic in as a cardiologist in ohio before coming to bangalore in 2008 so i call bangalore home okay uh, why did your father want to uh move out and you know what made you want to do the reverse yeah exactly because usually it's the other way around right so yeah so my father i think in those days as a physician opportunities uh for advanced studies were more easily available abroad he was a radiologist and some of the advanced subspecialties you know that you want to do um to learn and sharpen your skills were more easily available in other countries uh so we moved at a young age um and then as the kids grew up then it was we decided to stay more family members came over and uh yeah so we've sort of done the reverse migration in 2008 um i knew that what i wanted to do with my life was to serve society i understood this from you know years before but working as a cardiologist at the top heart center in the world I was doing great work. We were saving lives left and right. We were doing the most advanced heart surgery in the world. Um I developed products that are now in use in literally hundreds of thousands of lives across the world. Our 
help to develop those products. And, uh, but I wanted to do more and I wanted to come back and serve my country. So in 2008, we picked up. But did you have that connect with like, you know, my country? Like, I mean, for a kid who grew up in the US watching Star Wars, was that connect <laughs> there that my country is India? Well, you know, what happened was my grandparents were, were in India. And so I would come back on most summer holidays to spend time with them. The problem is, and you can ask my wife more about this, is that the, the India that I understood was from my grandparents' uh, generation. So, so my understanding of Indian Indian culture was like maybe two generations before. So I was always considered old-fashioned by my, by my peers back in India or even back in the United States. I was the old-fashioned one. But that's because I learned Indian culture from my grandparents, which was wonderful. Um, but it made me a little bit uh, dated, perhaps. And <laughs> in your wife is also from India? Yes, she was born and brought up here. And we met when uh, she was working in the United States. So uh, it wasn't so much a culture clash as much of a, a few, you know, funny generational things. Did you enter medicine following your father's footsteps? Or like you, you, you were like genuinely looking at serving humanity as... as... You know, what happened is... Uh, in, in, I entered Stanford back in 1989 as a freshman, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. The advantage of the, the U.S. system is that you can enter a college, and uh, it's okay if you don't know what you want to do, and they give you the chance to explore and to try out different things. So I looked at engineering. I looked at anthropology. I looked at uh, physics, for example, um, and we had really until our second or third year to decide what stream we wanted to enter. That's the way the system was at that time. Um, the way that it works is typically during your summer holidays, you're supposed to do something that uh, will benefit you in your future career. And, and the only and same thing here, you know, you're supposed to do internships and stuff like that. But the only opportunities available to me were really boring opportunities in petrochemical engineering uh, near my hometown, which didn't appeal to me. It's important, but it wasn't my cup of tea. And uh, so instead, one of my seniors had uh, done something very interesting. She bicycled, bicycled across the United States for charity uh, with the group of 20 other people. So I did the same thing the following summer from going from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., I got really, really buff. <laughs> I had huge legs. <laughs> we would cycle about 125 kilometers a day on average. And it was wonderful. Um, and where would you stay at night? Like, was it all like planned? It was and... an organized trip. So we had uh, some places we would stay at campsites. Sometimes we would stay in people's homes. We stayed in a Buddhist monastery in Denver, Colorado. We stayed in a commune in Virginia. Uh, churches and other places opened their doors to us. And it was just really wonderful. It really was a great time. A lot of like-minded people of my own age and they're 18. I was 18 at the time, people in their 20s and 30s who were there really to make a difference and trying to make a, a difference in the world. Uh, and it was then on one of these long days, you know, because 125 kilometers a day is a long, it's a long day in terms of cycling. One of these long downhill rides coming down from the mountains of California into the desert on the other side, you have a lot of time to think. Yeah, and there would be no iPods and... Oh, yeah, we didn't have those things in those days. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's like you could listen to podcasts while cycling. Oh, podcasts were like not even, not even understood, yes. 
Yeah. So, but on one of these long downhill rides that took like half an hour to get to the bottom because it was such a long slope, I realized that what I wanted to do with my life was to serve people, and that's what made me happy was to to was to help others, and that was how I got into medicine. That was the and and that's sort of really been my my sort of north star, I guess, for my whole life. So, getting uh, into like you know being a qualified. surgeon in the us is like a real grind i mean compared to india like like years and years and years of dedication how, how was that whole thing for you like tell me a bit about that yeah it was 15 years to become a cardiologist right so four years of college four years of medical school three years of internal medicine training and then four years of cardiology fellowship so 15 years altogether after high school it's a long ways and you really grow as a person you develop leadership abilities communication skills you understand the human psyche you understand body language posture um you know what it is to see people die and to comfort uh, those who've lost a loved ones you see the best and worst in people and uh, of course i worked after finishing my training i worked at the cleveland clinic and i was amongst the best of the best really in the whole world and that was just a fantastic experience being at such a high level of of competency it's a whole stratosphere above what other people were doing but that idea that you know that cycle ride that i had uh, years before that was still there and i said you know what i need to do more and so you were already doing a lot like why did you not feel fulfilled well in the united states uh at many developed countries uh we spend huge amount of resources for people at the end of their lives often people who are older um which is fine it's important right we all want our loved ones to live happily healthy and in lives with a high quality of life but what i saw is that a fraction of those resources if they were spent on say simple interventions in developed countries would would give kids you know uh the ability to live you know we could fix a hole in the heart for example with a fraction of the resources that we were spending um you know on people who had just one or two years left to live because they were already 80 or 90 plus and it's not a ju- clinical judgment it's it's these difficult medical questions that all physicians face there's no right or wrong answers to this um but what i felt personally to me was that i want to do something more than this i want to make a difference in the lives of many 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 people and so looking around i was already a part of the satyasai service organization in india the hospital the satyasai the sri satyasai service organization so it's people who are dedicated to that uh, that teachers uh, teachings which are basically serve everyone love everyone and serve everyone and there's a charity hospital started by the founder uh, one in bangalore and one in puttaparthi in andhra pradesh and, and a few other places fantastic facilities and so i just got an email one day across my desk in while i was sitting in my office at the hospital in cleveland and it said uh you know so and so there's some opportunities available for cardiologists cardiology fellows while well, i had already finished my training that wasn't of any interest to me but then at the bottom of the mail it said oh and there is an opening for a uh, cardiology consultant so i thought wow it just hit me and i said this is what i need to do i can provide free care at a hospital that has state of the art equipment so i wouldn't be missing anything you know you don't want to 
be in a center where you're working with the best of the best and then suddenly go to some outpost or boondocks and not have anything that you can use to serve your patients. Uh, so I'd have the best of the best um, in a fantastic environment. And I called my wife. She was uh, working. She was an investment banker at the time. She was busy. Uh, then she called me back. I was in the middle of rounds uh, seeing patients in the hospital floor. And we decided right then and there, yeah, let's do it. Let's uh, move to India and uh, let's go and, and, and serve our, our country. And that's how we came back to Bangalore in 2008. Just like that. One phone call, one email, it was decided. In these two decades uh, of your like education and career in the U.S., like, did you often go back to India and serve or like do some work or something? Or like, were you, how connected were you? I did, but you know, I never thought I would move back to India because I was in a, you know, I was a superstar in the United States and I saw myself doing cutting edge work, cutting edge research, building the latest technologies. That's what I did when I was at the Cleveland Clinic or even in my cardiology training. I was a hardcore uh, clinician researcher. That means that I would see patients and I would provide them with the best care, but I would also do research in ways to help our patients get better, to provide them with better diagnosis and therapies. And that meant to me, in my mind, being at the best centers in the world, which at that time was, was, was and is still probably the Cleveland Clinic today. Um, I didn't have that idea that I would move back to India, but this, this urge to come back and serve the country that was always there. The urge to serve the poor, that's never left. And that's what uh, pushed me to, to make the jump across the ocean. Did you have kids at this time? We did, but our son was only eight at the time, uh, seven or eight. So I think that made it easy. Had he been in, say, high school, oh, that would have been impossible. <laughs> but children, you know, at that age, they adjust easily. So it was a great adventure for all of us. Hmm. Okay. And, and how much of a pay cut did you take? I mean, I imagine you must have been like extremely well paid at the Cleveland Clinic. Yes, yes, yes. So working for a charitable hospital, of course, the focus is on the work and not so much on the remuneration. We were paid, but it was a fraction, probably maybe 2% of what I was earning in the United States. But you know, the satisfaction, I tell you, I remember one patient. Uh, it was a mother and a young girl. And we had done a surgery on her. She had a hole in the heart and uh, we did the surgery. It was successful. They came back after the operation for a checkup. And the mother said, you know, when can she start to play again? And I said, ma'am, uh, your daughter is completely normal now. She can eat normal food. She can play. She can run. She can do everything normal. And the mother was so relieved. She broke down in tears and thanking me profusely. Um, and I realized that, wow, you know, here, this is, this makes it all worthwhile because you're really, you know, you're bringing people back into the workplace. You're allowing children to finish their education. You're allowing young adults to re-enter the, the economy and contribute, uh, success, uh, you know, in a meaningful way to their families. Uh, you're helping people who, uh, the poor who have no access to state-of-the-art healthcare, their, their health literacy is often limited, their access to quality healthcare is even more so, and uh, this was a great opportunity to provide the best care to those who needed it the most. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Okay, okay. And uh, like, uh, were you able to maintain the same standard of living in India, like considering that you were 
getting paid much lower and all that like how did that adjustment happen you know so we came to the the satyasai hospital in bangalore and it's a 55 acre oasis uh, surrounded by a forest and farmland uh, the accommodations were very peaceful uh, and very good um and uh, it was very it was a very loving very peaceful environment so you know while we didn't have the five bedroom house with uh, you know the volvo car that we had in the united states that sense of peace that sense of contentment that's priceless uh, you can't put anything on on that and that was uh, i think that made it all the more worthwhile so we were very very satisfied very happy with that decision of course you know if people ask me what do you miss about life in the us i said the first thing i miss is the roads because <laughs> 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 people can drive you know i wasn't used to indian driving now i am but not in those days and the second thing i miss being in bangalore a city of now 13 million people is uh the parks cleveland had uh, lovely parks so they had really preserved nature with lovely streams and forests and we just don't have access to that in bangalore at least not easily accessible and uh, i miss that i miss that mhm mm okay and your wife got a job here or like yes she got a job she started her own uh, service consultancy and she's doing very well so you know our son has done well in school and so i i really believe that when you do good work you know it's a reflective universe right whatever you put out is reflected back to you so when you do good things then good things will happen back to you and that's that's what happened to us mm -hmm. okay so you know what made you move on from sri uh, satyasai so i was at satyasai hospital for nine and a half years and in my first week 2008 i'm fresh off the boat having just just gotten settled into bangalore i i still you know i'm confused i walk on the right side of the hallway uh, where everybody else is walking on the left side of the hallway you know those kind of things would happen uh, still trying to figure out where things are one of my first patients was a young guy he was hardly 28 he was a shoe cobbler you know those fellows who repair sandals and and so forth so he came in with a big heart attack uh but not because of diabetes or high blood pressure or any of those things he actually uh was breathing in vehicle fumes from working on the street all day long it was a heart attack due to air air pollution it was the first time i had ever seen that in my professional career I, I had certainly read about it. We all knew at that time that five and a half million people die every year due to air pollution. That was 13 years ago. Now the number is seven million deaths per year due to air pollution. So uh, I knew about it, but this was the first time I had seen it. And I did his angioplasty operation. We did the angioplasty operation, opened the blockage, and he got well so quickly that a few days later he walked out of the hospital. And I, I gave myself myself a little pat on the back. uh did a little dance and i was so happy two days later the same thing happened uh, another young fellow he was 32 he was a taxi driver again no risk factors for heart disease he didn't smoke didn't have diabetes or high blood pressure no family history of heart disease but he was breathing in vehicle fumes all day long basically bathed in air pollution and he came in with a, also a big heart attack did his angioplasty operation but he died right in front of me 
and we tried to save him. I had to go out afterwards and explain to the wife, the parents, the young daughter who was maybe 10 years old at the time was there also and explained that I'm very sorry, ma'am, but we did our best, but we couldn't save him. And that got me to thinking, that's due to air pollution. And it just kept on happening. I'd never seen so many people falling sick or getting worse because of air pollution. And I knew that, gosh, you know, how many angioplasties can I do per a day, really? You know, maybe 10, but the need is like hundreds of thousands. 50% uh, of those deaths due to air pollution is from heart disease. So I thought there must be a better way. Can we provide uh, technology to clean the air but it needs to be something that will work for literally hundreds of thousands of people at a time, you know, right? How do we make the air clean for everybody? That was my question. Because I'd already done so much work in biomed engineering, working with the likes of Philips and Siemens Healthcare, GE and others, I was able, I understood how these things worked. I put together a, a team of, uh, of scientists and engineers. We tried several different things. None of them worked. This was going on while you were still... Uh... I'm still a cardiologist working six days a week, 10 hours, 12 hours a day, right? So, But, you know, the good thing, working at Satya Sai Hospital, it's a charitable hospital. So I don't have any financial pressures, right? Meaning it's not like, oh, gosh, if I... Uh, if No targets to chase. Uh, I, in private hospitals, doctors have targets to chase. Yeah, exactly. Thank God I didn't have that because the focus was always on providing the best quality care to the patients. That was our bottom line. And that was, that was easy to do because I loved it. But I had this burning thing of, well, how can I help these other, you know, five and a half million people who are dying every year from air pollution? Finally, actually, my cardiology knowledge gave me the answer uh, through MRI scanning. Many people have done MRI scans for, you know, their knee or their brain or whatever it is. And you, you go inside this big tube and it makes a lot of noise and takes pictures of whatever body part needs to be picked. You know, basically what happens in MRI is that the, the, there is an antenna that's put onto whatever part of the body needs to have uh, pictures taken. And that antenna sends, sends radio waves, but they're pulsed radio waves into the body. And they bounce back from the body and they are received by the antenna. And then the computer constructs an image which the doctors read in to diagnose the, the condition of the patient. So that's how MRI works, pulsed radio waves. And I also knew that when we use pulsed radio waves in a different way, we can use it to destroy tumors, or cancers, or correct um, electrical problems in the heart. And I, and I thought, you know what? Pulsed radio waves are the only thing that will go really a long distance, you know, to be able. And if we can pulse these radio waves in just the right way, we can perhaps improve the way that uh, pollution is cleared. And it took us a while, but we figured it out. I figured it out, how to pulse the radio waves. And that's the secret sauce is the, how it's pulsed. Basically, um, I'll just explain it in a very simple manner. You know, during the lockdown, we didn't drive our cars or two-wheelers for a few days, right? And when you go back out, you see a layer of dust on your car or two-wheeler. What happens is that these dust particles, which we usually don't see, um, they collide together. Some of these dust particles are like tiny magnets. They have positive and negative charges on them. So that just like the magnets you played with in school, it draws them together. They agglomerate or they coagulate. They, they become bigger. And because they're now bigger and heavier, 
they settle down to the ground and they settle onto the surface of your car or your coffee table or work desk or whatever surface is there, plants and so forth. Scientists call this process dry deposition. And it happens all the time. So if you don't wash your car, if you don't go out, if you don't wipe your uh, dinner table, you have a layer of dust. That's how it works. That's how nature cleans about two thirds of the pollutants in the air. So what this pulsed radio waves does is it increases the charge on the microscopic pollutant particles, not the ones that you can see, but the microscopic ones, the ones that we call PM10 and 2.5 because they're 10 microns or two and a half microns in diameter. Those are the ones that are so small that uh, when you breathe them in, they enter into the lungs and the PM2.5, which is really, really tiny, um, it can actually enter the bloodstream and then cause havoc in all parts of the body. Um, in the heart, it causes uh, heart attacks. In the lungs, it causes uh, lung disease, cancer, and blood clots. In the brain, it causes dementia. In the kidneys, it causes kidney failure, and on and on. You know, ovaries, it causes infertility and so forth. Every, every organ practically is damaged. So these PM10 and 2.5, when exposed to pulsed radio waves in a particular manner, um, their charges are increased, and that just attracts them uh, faster to each other they uh, coagulate faster and they settle out of the air. So that uh, actually works quite well with some limitations, of course, like any technology. But boy, it was really successful. It was really successful. And, you know, the 10 or 13 years that I spent uh, developing this technology before the company started, you know, I, I worked on number, you know, I had experience in, with medicines, right? As a doctor, you can imagine I would have seen a lot of new treatments come and go. I didn't want to make the same mistakes that I had seen with uh, certain medicines or therapies that initially seemed promising, but were later were not successful because of various issues. So I tested it to make sure it was effective. Then we tested it to make sure it was safe. Then we tested it to make sure it was robust under various conditions, cold and hot and wind and rain. And the kicker, what caused a cardiologist to quit his practice and, and, and actually join a startup because you have to be either really crazy or really courageous to do what I did. The kicker was that when we looked at our data of people who lived around the Sakisai hospital where I was working, as well as the hospital staff who lived in, in the hospital campus, we found that uh, the number of admissions to the emergency room reduced uh, on the days that this is the, our technology was on. Um, we found that the number of heart attacks reduced by a third, number of blood clots reduced by 20%, the number of strokes reduced by 30%, and even uh, visits to the um, acute care clinic by our hospital staff also reduced by some 40%. Mainly people weren't getting colds and things like that because they were breathing cleaner air, their immune system was stronger, and they, they felt better. So I was like, man, there's nothing I could do in medicine that makes such a dramatic effect as this. And slowly, slowly, uh, I decided, okay, we've got to make this available to the public. And the best way to do that was to bring out the technology so that others could benefit. And that's how our startup, uh, our green tech company, Davic Earth, was born. Okay. So uh, I want to uh, like understand a bit of a journey, please. Uh, pre the incorporation. So, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, who who was working with you on the research? Was it like 
corporations or was it like just volunteers or you know and how were you funding that research right right you know nothing there is a saying that success breeds success right and uh, i think we got lucky in the beginning we had a few successful trials we got funding from the ministry of environment and forest uh, we had a lot of support from the central pollution control board uh, which is like the us epa for india um they gave us access to their scientists and some of their uh, reference laboratories we also got funding from uh, various private companies as well as ngos based in the united states and in europe who also funded this work and i'm very grateful to all of them um they allowed us to hire staff to buy equipment so the, this this was what like this was uh, the satya sai hospital getting the funding or you as a person it would always go to the to the hospital yeah it would always go to the hospital because it won't come to me as an individual but then it would be the grant so you were essentially heading this initiative inside satya sai yes exactly 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 and you know i would always have to do this either before patient care or after patient care so it wasn't that i could spend days and days doing this it would always have to be squeezed in uh somehow before or after the days work so the days were long you know sometimes 12 hour plus days and of course i had staff to take care of the work during the day but um it took that kind of dedication to make it happen right okay and uh, what does this uh, what does the solution look like can you help me visualize it is it like a you know the way you have that this tv and all of those is it something like that or right right so the solution you know in the the first generation remember how the old iphones were so bulky yeah, and clunky yeah. yeah so our first generation devices were like 200 kilograms uh maybe 4 feet by 6 feet by 6 feet boxes oh it was really i mean it was it was great but it was really cumbersome uh and then what happened is uh, and and what would these boxes do like they'd be plugged into a power source and then yes, they would yes yes and they had a antenna inside to broadcast our our pulsed radio waves they had our hardware some uh, some uh, iot devices in them and so forth that would read the air quality and then give feedback so that we could adjust how the pulses were being sent and so forth we tried different types of antennas all sorts of pulse sequences um and so forth and and eventually we decided you know what let's just use wifi because wifi is just pulse it's just radio energy it's radio waves but with wifi number one everybody knows wifi right i mean especially now uh we have wifi in our homes and our uh, offices airports and hotel rooms it's quite comfortable that the world health organization has said it's safe uh and then secondly the hardware is cheap you know for wifi it's not very costly um so we can we can just replicate that so that really shrunk the technology to a much smaller box that's now maybe 2 feet by 2 feet by 2 feet so it's not gotten much smaller and easier to use and that can be positioned anywhere you know on top of a building or on a say a lamp pole or inside an office if it's indoor um so the beauty of this is that it works uh, either indoors or either outdoors both it's really the only thing that can improve air quality outdoors across large areas so th- this 2 feet by 2 feet by 2 feet box like uh, how big an area can it uh, help remove pollution from so so th- because if, if you think of a wifi network you know in in wifi the technicians will call it in telecommunications they'll call it a point to point network what that means is you can network these uh, boxes together 
Um, just like if you've been to an airport, remember the old days when we used to fly? So uh, you can network these, you know, if you go to one terminal and the next, you've got Wi-Fi throughout the entire building. And all they do is they just uh, put their Wi-Fi routers or extenders every, uh, usually about 100 meters or so. And that's enough to extend the signal across the entire building, which can actually cover many, many, many acres. So Wi-Fi networks can go very big. In fact, the largest Wi-Fi network is more than 300 kilometers uh, wide in Argentina, and that's used to bring uh, uh, internet signals to remote areas. So you can really extend the range. So we can, you know, we can just put as many boxes as we need, say 250 meters across from each other, and that's enough to cover a large area. We can, our biggest installation right now is about 750 acres. It's pretty huge. Where, where is this? This is at uh, one of the steel plants. Okay, okay, good. Okay. So uh, when you decided that you want to, uh, like, you know, go all in on this, uh, what were the options in front of you? I mean, you must have thought of doing it through a nonprofit also versus doing a startup. So, you know, tell me about your thought process and, you know, how you then finally decided that you want to do it through a corporation. and Right, right. So we had offers from several companies right away to buy out this technology. Companies like GE and Philips and these guys. Yeah, big guys came and say, you know, this is great. We've seen your results. This is awesome. Um, I know you have a patent on this. We'll buy you out for this much, and this is what we put. When I got into discussions of what they plan to do with it, I realized that, you know, it's business, right? And they need to make a return on their investment. But their plans were to charge such a high premium on the technology. You know, the purpose for making all this was so for those the taxi driver and the, the shoe cobbler to breathe clean air. But if you make it so expensive, how are they ever going to afford it? Or how is the, say, a city government going to afford it so that it can be uh, utilized for the benefit of hundreds of thousands of people? So that, that option of, say, licensing the technology or selling the patent to someone else didn't really appeal to me because I knew that it would not really reach uh, the millions of people that I had in mind when we created this technology. So then I thought, well, we could go for a nonprofit, but boy, that would take forever. You know, it would be like slow motion. Um, so that didn't work. And then I thought, okay, well, shoot, we're in Bangalore. Uh, you know, if you throw a stone in Bangalore, you hit some techie uh, and, and half of them will be from a startup. Exactly. So uh, why don't we just start a, begin a startup and, and let's try. And I had great friends, uh, you know, really great people who joined me. Buma Krishnan, our, our chief operating officer. My family gave me tremendous support. Um, other people came forward. And, and it was that support that I got from my friends, family, and community that really made it possible. It's not easy giving up uh, a, a career in cardiology, something that I'd worked so hard in, and then taking that dive to become a startup entrepreneur. But once I saw, remember, this was something that could make a difference in the lives of, of millions of people as I saw it. That was the, the closing chapter enough to say, okay, let's do this. Hmm. And uh, what was the plan? Like, did you raise funds, right? You must have needed funds right from day one, no? Because you need to manufacture a device, so you need to spend first. Yes, exactly. Now, remember that we had 10 years uh, running start. 
So a lot of the technology, you know, things had been worked out already in advance, but there was still a lot more to do. We had to make it more robust for, for commercial purposes. Uh, we had a lot of these things to work out. And it's also a new technology. And when you have a new technology, there's several things that you need to address. One, you want uh, publications in peer-reviewed scientific journals to explain to uh, the public at large, and especially to the scientific community, how does this technology work and how has it been validated? I'm really happy to say that now we have those manuscripts coming out. We worked with great teams like uh, the team at IIT Kanpur um, and others who've really been very, very uh, supportive and have, have helped us to get tremendous results and understand and define the technology more effectively. Second is you want to have it tested independently. It's not enough. If I tell you, see, this, this technology will reduce pollution by 50%, blah, 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 I needed somebody else to do the same thing. So it has to be validated independently um, of, of our work. So that also needed to be done. And then third thing is you want to have use cases or proof of concepts in different, different settings. So let's say cement industries, uh, steel plants, uh, thermal power plants, or what about indoors like... Um, shopping malls or schools or uh, corporate offices, for example. And so, of course, that takes time and, and effort. But, you know, three years later, I'm happy to say that uh, we're there and, and what a, an amazing journey it's been in these last three years since the company was launched. It's, it's not easy. And anyone who wants to join to start a, their own startup, I would say think twice before you do it. But it's been the most satisfying thing I've ever done. So, uh, like, uh, did you, uh, like, put in your own money initially or did you raise funds to, uh, you know, cross all the T's and dot the I's and to actually build uh, an inventory? You must have needed to build an inventory before you could go to market. Right. So the first, the first step was to uh, use uh, some of our own family savings. And we did that. Uh, my father pitched in as well. And uh, thanks, Dad. <laughs> but uh, we had a lot of help uh, from family and friends. And then uh, uh, then uh, we were able to raise some angel investors from really people who are literally walking angels. They, they invested in us. They saw the value of what we were doing. Um, and they invested us. They believed in the work that we were doing. And then what happens is you have a certain fiduciary responsibility because these people have invested in us. And we need to make sure that we... Uh, return their investments with some kind of return, right? And a good return, better than the current market rate. So I understood that, and we worked really hard to to make sure that happens. Then, as sales started to pick up and we were doing quite well, then we were able to land a pre-series a investment round with a fantastic team, uh, a venture capital firm called Blue Ashfa, uh, based out of Singapore, and they've just been an amazing, just tremendous support, uh, really seasoned hands, and uh, um, very encouraging, uh, really helping us to see the bigger picture beyond the vision that we had. And, and you know, when people ask me, what does it take to make, make a successful startup? I always say the first thing you need is vision. You need a grand vision. So my, my vision for David Girth is to be the global leader in green technology, what Elon Musk has done with Tesla, you know, what Steve Jobs did with iPhones for Apple. I want to do that for green technology with David Grip. That's the grand vision. But to execute that vision, to make it a reality, 
you need an awesome product, you need a great team, and you need a, a business model that is scalable, that will give you uh, returns and, and, and that, is, that you can scale those returns up. So uh, what was your initial business model and has that evolved like, you know, 2018 when you started up? So initially we were just into sales and, uh, you know, we started with a very low price. Uh, I won't give the price because it's not relevant now, but basically we started selling and it was successful. Our customers were happy. What uh, what was your go-to market? Like, you know, were you like going out? cold calling corporates or, you know, how did you get those? So, so, you know, our, our USP is that we cover large areas, you know, a traditional, say a home air purifier will cover what, maybe 500, 600 square feet. That was not of any interest to us. We were, you know, when we set our units up, we can cover 50,000 or 100,000 square feet very easily. So this large area of coverage at high efficacy and low cost, that was what we were looking at. So who are the customers that would want to come to us? Well, one obviously would be the industries who... Manufacturing. Manufacturing. People who make companies that make pollution as part of their work. Um, steel industry, cement, thermal power, mining, for example, construction companies, even shipping and ports or airports, for example. But then there's another group of customers who don't make any pollution at all, but they don't want to be affected by pollution. So these were customers like uh, luxury hotels, um, uh, marathons, corporate real estate, schools. Uh, we even did a, a satsang for a Swamiji uh, in Rishikesh in the Himalayas uh, in February, January and February, of just you know a year be just before the pandemic started, and. Uh, they, it was an outdoor arena with some 3,000 people every day, and we were able to improve air quality there by 50 plus percent. So we got to do all sorts of lovely things and meet different types of people from, from a variety of uh, verticals, which made it a lot of fun. But what happened is the pandemic kicked in, and then we found that, well, the sales model is good, but the problem is that a lot of companies don't want to spend a huge amount right now. Right. It makes sense. Right. Because uh, loss of income, et cetera. So thanks to Netflix and others like it, you know, where you subscribe to Netflix and we're all OK with the whole subscription model right now. We actually switched to a subscription model and that's worked great because there's no capex spend expenditure for the uh, businesses. Uh, they just pay a monthly fee. Uh, they can stop whenever they want. And it makes it really easy for customers. You know, it's funny when my salespeople go to, say, a factory. Um, the other day, we went to a tire factory. And they said, oh, the, the feedback from the, from the head of environment there, very smart fellow, was, oh, God, how much is this going to cost me? And my salesperson said, well, sir, it's on a subscription. And it's just going to be 99 paisa per square foot per month. And the guy said, that's all. <laughs> It said, yeah, so that subscription model has worked really well for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, okay. And uh, like, how many uh, months of subscription uh, does it take for you to recover the cost of uh, the equipment that you set up at a place? Like, when does an account get profitable? Yeah, it depends on the site. I mean, sometimes it can take a year, year and a half or more. And, uh, you know, but we, we've, we've done the business modeling to make sure that uh, neither is it too expensive, nor is it uh, 
too low in cost. We do, of course, continue sales, especially for international sales. We're happy to say we just got our closed our first international deal for some mines in copper mines in Chile, in South America, and we're quickly expanding into uh, the Middle East and South Asia. And uh, by this time, or by first part of uh, 2022, we expect to be in the U.S. and Europe. So it's really fun. This is the stage where it's really fun, you know, where things are growing, they're going fast, the customers are happy, the employees are, are happy. It's a, it's a fun time right now. How did you land the Tata Jamshedpur deal? You know, they had a competition, actually, and they contacted us. They said, look, we're a steel plant, and as part of our innovation work, we are looking to... Uh, we're looking for solutions to improve air quality. Tata is a very sustainable company. You know, they're really very ethical and, and really they do, they do fantastic work. And they wanted to support companies that would be able to bring innovation in the realm of air quality. Uh, but basically they're looking for solutions that would improve ambient air outdoors. That means the air that's outdoors, not the air that comes from their chimneys or stacks in the factories, but what we all of us breathe, the workers would breathe outdoors, what the communities near the plants would be breathing. They were looking for that kind of solution. So we we entered a competition or they entered us in the competition and we won. Uh, and that's how our relationship with uh, Tata Steel uh, started. It, it wasn't easy. It was a year and a half long process, um, you know, to to get there. But uh, it was a good chance for us to prove ourselves. And, uh, you know, since then, we've won many, many, many competitions as well. Okay. So uh, are there uh, other companies that offer a similar solution? As far as uh, pulsed radio wave? No. A lot of it has to do with the pulse and how you pulse it. That's, again, our secret sauce. There are other companies, of course, that have filter-based uh, solutions for uh, outdoor air. Um, most of them are limited by by area of coverage. No one comes close to us in terms of area of coverage, efficiency in terms of improving air quality, or being able to do so at the lowest cost per square foot. Yeah, I mean, filter-based wouldn't solve the problem of, say, you know, like Delhi has that crop-burning-related pollution there's no filtration which can solve that. I mean, unless you're like doing just for indoors. Yeah, filters are fine for indoors and small spaces indoors. But yes, not for outdoors, definitely. Any kind of, and you know, most of these filters don't work when they're wet. That's, <laughs> it's going to rain, right? <laughs> so uh, that's the problem. I've also seen some of these, uh, um, some of these filter-based systems get knocked over in the wind and uh, some of them are so poorly designed that they actually make air pollution worse. Uh, this kind of technology is not a cut and paste. You really have to think it through. It has to be intelligent uh, technology. What are the limitations of your system? Like, does it work in rain also? And like, you know? Yes, yeah, it does work in rain. See, no technology will do everything. Our focus is on the microscopic particles. We found that, you know, when we apply the pulsed radio waves, it only works on particle sizes of less than 20 microns. Now, in comparison, a, a, a piece of fine beach sand, one grain of sand, is about 90 microns. So we're not able to affect anything large. So that means that, let's say, if there is a dust storm, you know, like the dust storms that come through Delhi once in a while, we would not affect the dust from the dust storm. If it was a volcano explosion, 
we would not affect the volcanic ash. We would re reduce the PM10 and 2.5, but nothing is visible. Now, the good news is those large dust particles, for the most part, are filtered out in the upper airways anyway. Um, most of it, not all, but most of it. And so it's really the microscopic particles. So what we focus on, PM10 and 2.5, that are the most dangerous from a health standpoint. The other thing is that what we're doing is we're just speeding up what happens in nature. So it takes a while, especially outdoors, maybe a week or more for the effect to be seen. So ours is not a solution for emergency situations. So remember last year in the city of Vizag in Andhra Pradesh in India, there was a gas leak that unfortunately killed many people. That is an emergency situation and our technology would have no role in those kind of, kind of uh, situations. Mm -hmm. So what about for the uh, crop burning pollution in Delhi? I mean, you know, I've lived many years there, so that's an issue close to my heart. Yes, yes. Now, obviously, you know, we're, even though we are a technology solution, we always, always say the first step is to reduce pollution at the source. That's, that's like number one through 10. So you reduce crop burning, you improve solid waste management so there's less burning of garbage, you improve, uh, say, vehicle efficiency, your corporate average fuel economy standards, for example. You switch to cleaner burning fuels, which has happened recently with the switch to uh, bottom stage six uh, fuels in most cities, for example, or BS6 cars. That's great. Um, you encourage a transition to uh, to mass transit, uh, or bicycles, electric vehicles, renewable energies. All those things are important. Um, and that's like one through 10 on the list, if, if, if not even more than that. But sometimes there's still a need for technology, and that's where our solution can uh, play a role. Um, we wish it weren't always so, but sometimes it is required. And uh, that is when these kind of uh, technologies can be used. But the first step is always is reduce pollution at the source. But hypothetically, what would be, say, you know, like uh, if, if there's a corporate which has an office in, say, Noida, which gets a lot of this crop burning pollution. So hypothetically, what would be the impact uh, if they were to install this, like during those peak uh, couple of weeks? Sure. We've actually tried this. Uh, we've done a couple of marathons in Delhi, for example. Uh, during the crop burning season, typically after um, the Dashara festival in India, which is around uh, the mid to latter part of October, and crop burning is usually at its peak. And in these settings, we found that we've been able to improve ambient air quality by uh, anywhere from 35 to about 50, 60% in, in these areas, whether it's PM 2.5 or PM 10. PM 2.5 is a smaller particle, so the magnitude of reduction is a bit more, compared to PM10, which is a larger particle. So this air comes in from Punjab. Uh, wouldn't that uh, make it impossible to make any impact? I mean, whatever air you clean in that area would just move on and, you know, more pollution would come in? Like, or So what's happened is, is uh, you know, our systems have gotten smarter over time. And so we're able to incorporate data like uh, wind speed and wind direction, temperature and humidity. Uh, we look at traffic from Google Maps, for example, uh, traffic density from Google Maps. We can, if it's at a customer's industrial site, we look at how many shifts do you have per day, two shifts or three shifts? And how many workers do you have? And we even get into details like, oh, you're doing welding. Well, welding is very toxic smoke. What kind of welding wire 
are you using? Is it manganese? Is it copper? And how many kilograms per day? So we put all of this data and we get crop burning data from Nassau. We look at any other sources of pollution that may be next to that uh, upwind from that customer site. And then we feed this into our system to optimize how every machine works. And the beauty is that every single machine can be operated independently. So a machine that's closer to the main road where pollution is more would work differently than the one that's, say, next to the park, say, in, a, say in an office uh, IT park setting or something like that. So it, it, it's really lovely and it works very, very effectively. So can you uh, talk about the different modes? Like, you know, as you said, that machines in different scenarios would work differently. Like, what are the modes? Is it like a high intensity mode, low intensity mode or, you know, like? You know, we have to cover for things that um, can affect pollution levels. And the easiest ones to understand would be temperature and humidity, because these all affect the pollution levels that are present. And according to that, we have different types of pulses that we use. If PM10 is high, we work this way. If PM2.5 is high, we use a different pulse sequence. There are about a dozen or so that we use and, and uh, that we operate according to that. And everything is controlled through IoT. So even during the lockdowns, for example, we had 100% uptime of all of our systems as long as power was available. Um, and the power is hardly like 20 watts or so. It's just like two or three LED bulbs. It's not very much. Our later units uh, this year will all be solar powered for outdoor use. And we're really excited about that. Um, yeah, so it's very simple and easy to work. But remember, again, we've had 13 years to do this and figure out a lot of the kinks and, and bugs and work them out. Hmm. So uh, how, how much would it cost for, let's say, a, a, a two-acre campus, like the subscription cost? Uh... Yeah, it's not much, actually. Uh, the subscription model generally runs about, uh, for the smaller areas, it runs for about 10 to 14,000 rupees a month. Uh, per acre for clean air for outdoors and then for indoors depending on the size it can be let's say one and a half rupee or two rupees less than two rupees a month per square foot per month or much less of course you know it's like slabs for electricity the um, but the more you the larger the area the lower the price because it becomes easier for us to set up for large areas so actually we've made it quite cost efficient and, and we found the feedback from our customers on the subscription model has been quite good. So there's a, this is like an example of innovation in business uh, models, right? The subscription plan, but it's not SaaS. Remember, it's software-enabled hardware that we are using. Software-enabled hardware. That's that's what we're providing. So it's not SaaS. It's not it's not lighting as a service, which is a pure hardware solution. It's in between. Hmm. Got it. Got it. Okay. So w what do you think would be your constraints to growth? Would it be supply or would it be demand? Like, you know, uh, do you feel that uh, you will be able to install whatever you can produce and its production you need to figure out? Or is it that you need to do a lot of evangelism and get people to buy? And, uh, you know, what is like a bigger constraint to growth? Mm -hmm. I think the biggest constraint to growth is us. That is meaning, uh, what's our vision, right? Do we want to be a 100-core company? Do we want to be a 500-core company? Do we want to be a 5,000-core company? Uh, that's our biggest constraint. And, and it's like when I talk to my sales team, I say, when you go to a customer, go with the attitude that you've already closed the sale because that will give you the confidence to make it so.
right? It's about self-confidence. And the same thing is true here. We have a great technology for air. Now, interestingly, the same technology is very effective in cleaning up pollution in water. Uh, and, and we're not the first to come up with pulsed radio waves for cleaning up pollution. The first patent for, for this uh, was actually in 1990, uh, pulsed radio waves to clean up uh, pollutants in water, generally from industries. And what they found was that it works really good in cleaning up pollutants in those days. But the problem was that the pulsed radio sequences they used were so crude, the electricity requirements were very high, and it just became economically too costly to use that. And so it gave way to other technologies that came later on. But pulsed radio waves and water works really well, and we've been able to simplify it. And so there are a lot of things, you know, that will come out from this. Um, right now, for example, we are working with, we've just uh, started in the early stages working with NASA. Um, we're invited to collaborate with them because they are asking the question of, look, when we send a spacecraft to the surface of the moon, okay, it, it, then when the spacecraft lands or when the astronaut walks on the surface, it kicks up lunar dust. And that lunar dust is the remnants of old asteroids and meteors from millennia or actually hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. But there's no atmosphere on the moon. So that dust has not weathered. It's very abrasive. And NASA folks are telling us that it's actually uh, scratched the, um, the, the dome of the face, face dome of the astronaut suit. It's damaged equipment. And remember the ISRO craft you know, that failed recently? Part of the failure was because of the same lunar uh, dust that gets kicked up. So it can be very problematic. NASA is trying out different technologies, and they want to look at whether pulsed radio waves can be useful in this setting. Of course, we don't know. We have to test it out. And, and everything that we do has to be backed by scientific data. And so we're really looking forward to this. The interesting challenge here is to make it very lightweight, because when we're sending something up into space, every gram counts and we have to make it really lightweight. It can't be 20 kgs like it is right now. It's got to be like 250 grams or something. I don't know how much, but it's got to be very lightweight, but very robust for the environment that you would see on the surface of the moon. That's really fun. And, and so when we say the sky is the limit, I mean, we're really not kidding, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, what stops you from covering 50% of a city like Bangalore? Yeah. Like, you know, I think it's just time. It's just time. Every new technology takes time to be accepted. And, uh, and again, we are not looking to be a solution without reducing pollution at the source. That's not our interest. Always, always, always first reduce pollution at the source. Uh, do a proper source apportionment study. That means that scientists will understand where is the pollution coming from for a city like Bangalore or Delhi. So they'll understand that, say, say 25 or 30 percent comes from the transportation sector. Another certain amount comes from this source. And then they can take scientific uh, data driven policy measures to reduce that pollution. Now, if that's not enough, then there is a role for technology. But our first preference always will be to reduce pollution at the source. Uh, are you currently working with any, uh, like, you know, state-level government to... Uh... We, we are. We are looking, and we have a number of collaborations. Of course, COVID has uh, slowed those things down, uh, but we look forward to working with them because we find that many of the, many of the, the policymakers want to do something, and, uh, but they, 
they are looking at the these things that I just mentioned, um, even like say improving solid waste management, it's so important to have you know good solid waste management so that people don't set fire to rubbish. Uh, but then they also recognize that during certain seasons, like crop burning season in Delhi, or not just Delhi, but the entire uh, Gangetic Plain, that we need something else during those intense periods. Uh, another example might be, uh, think, for example, the California crop fires, the wildlife wildfires that started last year that have been happening for the last few years. That's another example where um, it's not really an issue about having, say, cleaner burning fuels or more electric vehicles on the road. This is something else entirely, and technology can play a role in minimizing the risk to health from those kind of events. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, do you still stay on the Satya Sai campus or like? No, once we, once we finished as a cardiologist, then we moved out. But, you know, the physician in me doesn't quit. And so, yes, uh, uh, you know, two days a week, I still uh, read the scans of the heart with them, you know, for a short while each day to keep up my skills. And I enjoy, I enjoy working with the physicians there on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And uh, like, what do you see as your, uh, uh, like, what will be the turnover of Devic uh, by the end of this current financial year? Sure. You know, initially we set our target as 12 crores and that was pre-pandemic before the uh, second wave. Um, We will smash that in the next month or two. And I expect that uh, we should close at least four times that number by the end of the year, I'd like to reach 100. I've, I've told my VCs, I said, look, once we reach 50 crores, I want you guys to hold my feet to the fire and make us reach 100 crores, right? So because that's growth. And that just means that that uh, people, we have a product that people love, that they find real value in, uh, that helps them. And, you know, our data shows that uh, that our customers typically see improvements in air quality by more than half. And their sick leaves, that is, their, their sick leaves from their employees actually reduced by 11% because their employees are breathing cleaner air. And that's tangible. Uh, that's a tangible difference. Right, right, right. And how do you handle the manufacturing? Do you have like a plant or is it? Yeah, we, we do everything ourselves. We do everything ourselves. You have a plant in Bangalore? Yes, yes. And luckily for us, we have the opportunity to scale up so we can handle larger order sizes as they come in. Beyond Campus is a production of the Podium.in, powered by Career Launcher. If you like this show, then we are sure that you will love our other shows on subjects like entrepreneurship, marketing, books, and drama. Check out the Podium.in for a complete list of all our shows.